Abraham, a man named Melchizedek, something of a mysterious figure on the pages of Scripture, but he's unique because he was appointed to his office directly by God. He wasn't of a priestly genealogy or descendants. Uh, he was appointed directly by God by divine oath, and that is more like Jesus' priestly office. And so we're going to uh, see a little bit more about that as we read this chapter, but that's the context here as we pick up reading at verse 11. The writer says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a, for a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And then this verse 25 that we're going to focus on this morning. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And then this small passage from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 22, just verses 31 through 34. Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 31. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. 
Now we're going to end our reading of God's Word there. Please keep your Bibles open in front of you, though. We're going to look at a few other passages, including the ones that I've just read. Friends, what is Jesus doing right now? What is Jesus doing right now? Maybe that's a question that's never been asked of you. If it were asked, you might struggle to answer that question. What is Jesus doing right now? Perhaps it's, it's difficult for us to answer that question, at least off the top of our heads, because in our, in our tradition, it's, it's usually our focus to look at what Jesus accomplished in the past, to, to, to look at and study and rejoice in the finished work of Jesus back then in order to save us. It's appropriate that we do that. It's appropriate that we spend time thinking about and studying and, and coming to a proper understanding of things like uh, Jesus' obedient life, that he came to earth, uh, took on human flesh, and obeyed the law in our place as the second Adam. Uh, we like to study things like Jesus' sacrificial death, he died on the cross in order to make propitiation for our sins, to remove the wrath of God and to apply his earned righteousness to us, all things that happened in the past. It's, it's appropriate that we hone in our focus on his victorious resurrection, uh, his glorious victory over death for his saints. But because we spend the lion's share of our time focusing on the finished work of Jesus, the, the accomplished work of his redemption for us, stuff back then, sometimes we tend to think that everything we need for salvation is all in the past. And if someone were to ask us, what's Jesus doing right now, we have a hard time coming up with something to say. Uh, we might imagine him sitting in heaven, uh, enjoying his victory, just keeping watch, uh, waiting for his return, perhaps. But what is he really doing right now? And the passages I just read present us with a, a glorious, comforting reality that Jesus, after ascending into heaven, continues to be active as our Savior in a very special way. He is presently interceding for us. We are, we are acceptable to God this morning. We were able to come here without being consumed by God's just wrath. Because Jesus always lives to represent us before the Father in heaven. It's a wonderful, comforting reality that the loving heart of Jesus Christ that first led him to suffer and die on the cross for his children, that loving heart of Jesus hasn't stopped beating with the same depth of compassion for us now that he has gone to be with his Father. The intensity of his divine mercy revealed at Calvary has not grown cold or distant just because Jesus is not present with us physically here on earth. Jesus intends, we read in Hebrews 7, he intends to save us to the uttermost. And so he always lives 
to make intercession for us. We're going to look at that comforting reality this morning, uh, noting, first of all, from the book of Hebrews, Jesus' perfect qualifications to be our intercessor. Next, we're going to look at uh, what is the nature of his intercession? What does it mean that as our forever high priest, he is interceding for us? And then finally, we're going to look at one way of thinking about Jesus' intercession, and that is that he is persistently praying for each and every one of us. Well, first of all, Jesus' perfect qualifications. It's helpful uh, if we're to understand verse 25 of chapter 7 in Hebrews that we have a little bit of idea of what the author has been arguing up to this point. And I'm sure if I asked one of the men from our Thursday morning men's Bible study, how would you summarize the book of Hebrews, the message of Hebrews? I'm certain they could give me an answer. I'm not going to ask them to do that, though. Uh, but there's three words that could easily sum up the message, the main thrust of the book of Hebrews, and that is this, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. What do I mean by that? Well, the author's burden all throughout the book of Hebrews to his readers is simply this, to put your trust in Jesus alone. Jesus, who is the mediator of a better covenant, a better relationship between God and his people that's founded upon better promises and unlike the old covenant, is characterized by the complete forgiveness and the final putting away of sin. The writer to the Hebrews warns his audience, don't go back to the shadows. Don't go back to the ceremonial laws and, and the sacrifices of the old covenant. When the better realities have come, the better realities of salvation procured by Jesus Christ, who is both the ultimate high priest as well as the final sacrifice for sin. Jesus is better. Don't go back to, to the door, through the door. There's nothing there waiting for you. And all we have to do is to go to the first few verses of chapter 1 of Hebrews to find that Jesus is better than all of the old covenant mediators. If you turn there in your Bibles with me to chapter 1 of Hebrews, just the first few verses there, we, we read off the bat that Jesus is the better prophet. We read verse 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is better than all the old covenant priests who declared God's word to God's people. Jesus is that final word, who not only is the word, but the creator and the ruler of all things. Jesus is the better priest. The writer goes on in verse 3 here. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. None of the old covenant priests could sit down. Their responsibilities, their intercession, never ended. They continued until death, and then someone else took over for them. But Jesus, after making full purification for sin as the high priest of the house of God, sat down. It's finished. He's the better priest. 
He's also the better king. Look at verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus is the king par excellence, ruling over all things from the house, from the line, the, the rule of David. And all things are subservient to him. Jesus, the better prophet, priest, and king, better than all of the old covenant human mediators. And Hebrews especially emphasizes that Jesus is the ultimate and final priest over the family of God. Chapters 5 and following reveal that in Jesus we have a high priest par excellence. He's not a priest because he's from the line of Aaron. He wasn't even from that tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah. But like Melchizedek, he was appointed by divine oath to his priesthood directly by God himself. He's of our nature so that he can truly sympathize with our weaknesses and, and truly do away with sin, but he's also fully divine. He is sinless so that he can truly do away with sin. As I said, he sat down in the completion and the fulfillment of his priestly work. And that's why the writer to the Hebrews says that through faith in Jesus, the better high priest, the final sacrifice, through him we have a better hope through which we can actually come to God. We can enter into the Holy of Holies and, and dwell with him in peace because we have this better mediator. He's the guarantor of a better covenant, he says in chapter 7, verse 22. He actually renews sinners' relationship with God. And he holds his office, verse 23 and 24 say, forever. It never ends. And then we come to verse 25, our focus this morning. All this being said, that Jesus is better, the mediator of a better covenant. Consequently, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. All this is simply to say this most important point. That Jesus is perfectly qualified to stand in between wretched sinners and a holy God and to restore that broken relationship. Jesus alone has the necessary credentials to be your Savior and to make you right again with your Creator. If you've come here this morning and you've given up on finding purpose in your life, if you think that you've fallen too deeply into the chasm of sin to ever climb out, if you are in the position where your circumstances have left you without hope, numb to your reality, there is only one, one who is perfectly qualified to bring you back to God, who gives life and purpose, who cleanses you from sin, who restores hope. And so put your faith, put your trust in Jesus, the better priest, the better mediator. Jesus is perfectly qualified 
to be your intercessor. But what is he doing exactly as your priestly intercessor? We, we wonder, after all, what is there left to be done? As he breathed his last on the cross, boys and girls, you know what Jesus said. He had just, uh, he was in the process of accomplishing our redemption, finishing all that was required to set us free from the condemnation of sin and death. And what did Jesus say? He said, it is finished. Jesus declared, it's done, it's accomplished. And we wonder sometimes, what more is there for Jesus to do for his saints through his heavenly intercession? And the wonderful answer to that question is that Jesus' intercession applies to us all that he accomplished through his atoning work on the cross. Christ's work on the cross was not incomplete. He accomplished a perfect atonement for us. He fulfilled every one of God's righteous demands. Nothing left to do as far as the accomplishment of our salvation is concerned. But there's still a question we have to think about. How do those saving blessings, those benefits that Jesus earned for us on the cross, how does that become mine? How does that become yours? The answer is that Christ must apply them spiritually and continually so that we are preserved in our salvation, so that we're upheld in the trials of life, so that we are constantly growing up into maturity as believers. We need him to apply his saving work to us. And that is what he is doing from heaven right now. Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 46, tell us that Jesus is present in heaven on our behalf. He's, he's there for you. But what, what are the benefits of that? How does that help us? Question 49 answers that question. He says, Jesus is our advocate. He's our defense lawyer in heaven in the presence of his Father. What is Christ doing right now? Christ is in heaven right now representing you before the Father as a constant reflection of his complete victory over sin and death that he has won for you. God, the judge of all, has only to look at his precious son to acknowledge that you and I are right with him because of what his atonement accomplished. And so Jesus' intercession is that moment-by-moment -moment application of his atoning work on the cross. In his wonderful book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland describes it in this way. Jesus' intercession is the constant hitting refresh of our justification in the court of heaven. And the Apostle Paul picks up on that in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34, we, we, we hear these wonderful questions. Paul asks, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And the answer is no one. No one could possibly charge God's elect, those covered in the blood of Christ, with anything worth their condemnation. Why? Because it is God who justifies. It's done, it's finished, it's complete. Who is to condemn? Again, the answer is no one. Because Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that was raised. But what is he doing now, Paul says? 
He's at the right hand of God, and he's interceding for us. He's justified us. We're joined to him by faith in his resurrection power, but it's Jesus in heaven who is preserving those saving realities and applying them to us by his Holy Spirit. And that's why in Hebrews 7, verse 25, we read that Jesus intends through his intercession to save us to the uttermost, literally completely. Jesus will not stop working until his saving work has been applied comprehensively and exhaustively in our lives. He's not a half savior. He doesn't do half a job. He saves us completely, and he applies that saving work to us without any exception. There can be nothing outstanding, nothing incomplete about Jesus' saving work as it relates to you and me, and that is such good news. Jesus is exactly the Savior that we need. Ortland writes again, because we are to the uttermost sinners, we need a to the uttermost Savior. We need a salvation that is comprehensively, completely applied to us. We need a Savior who never stops pleading our case in the heavenly courtroom, but one who exercises his priestly duty permanently, who continues forever in his office, in his work. We need a Savior who can save us to the uttermost so that we will never fall out of God's favor even when the old sin nature rears its ugly head. When doubts arise in our hearts that God's grace must surely have a limit. When we've grieved him, we think, one too many times to remain his child, we need a Savior who saves us to the uttermost. And that is the Savior we have. We have an intercessor who knows us, who saves us to the uttermost. How do we know? How do we know with certainty that our remaining sin and our doubts and our struggles cannot cut us off from his love? Again, verse 25, chapter 7, he always makes intercession. He always makes intercession for us. Jesus didn't simply finish his work, present it to the Father in the past, and now sits back and watches and sees how we'll make it on our own. That's not the Savior that we have. Praise God. No, he is constantly, moment by moment, holding out his atoning life and death and resurrection before the Father as our defense lawyer. The Father cannot, He will not condemn us for any remaining sin in our life because He's mesmerized, as it were, by the glaring righteousness of His own Son, a righteousness that He mercifully ascribes and applies to us. And that's why Paul can say in Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he always lives to make intercession for us. 
on account of his perfect obedience and righteousness. You see, Jesus' intercession is intensely personal. It's not just a doctrine or a theory that, that flits about in our brains. It's not just a, a question that we memorize for catechism class. Jesus' intercession is a reflection of who he is toward you, believer, forever as your Savior. Heidelberg Catechism, question 49, says that as part of his intercession, Jesus sends his Spirit to each and every one of us on earth as a, as a pledge of our eternal life with God. And Paul says that that same Spirit testifies with our individual spirits that we are children of God. And that's a status that's never going to change. Jesus' interceding spirit assures us daily that our Heavenly Father accepts us joyfully because He loves us like He loves His Son. The Father will never cast out those who are loved by His Son, for that would be to deny His own Son. And the Father cannot deny His Son. And so, so while we remain ongoing sinners... While it is our call to put our remaining sin to death every single day, we still have the moment-by-moment -moment assurance that in heaven we have a defender. We have a friend. We have a forever intercessor who will surely carry us all the way. I began the sermon by asking, what is Jesus doing right now? And one way to think of Jesus' intercession is this. Jesus is praying for you right now. Jesus is praying for you right now. He's praying persistently. He's praying without growing weary. He won't stop. He'll never grow tired praying and assuring that your faith will persevere to the end. Praise God that Jesus' prayers for us are not like our prayers to him. Our prayer life waxes and wanes. We're consistent for a while, then we stop for a while. And if Jesus' prayers for us looked that way, we would have reason for fear and anxiety and doubt. One writer says, but imagine the com profound comfort if you, you'd know, if you heard Jesus praying aloud for you in the next room without any ceasing. That's the comfort every believer knows. It's the comfort Jesus wanted Simon Peter to know during one of the darkest, most sinful moments of his life. He was confident that he would never fail to serve his Savior perfectly. He would even go to prison, even to death, for his Lord. And yet we know that he would cave very easily under the weight of fear and temptation. He would deny the Lord of life, his Lord. But what did Jesus say to Peter about that moment of personal downfall? He comforted him. He comforted him, assuring him that he would not ultimately fall away because Jesus had prayed for him. He could not fall away from the faith. He could not ultimately slip from the loving grasp of God because Jesus was his intercessor. And that's the comfort we're all meant to know. That Jesus prays 
for every one of those for whom he died. He is praying for you, believer, that your faith will not fail no matter how far you might fall. He's interceding for you. He's praying for you. And so in your fight against sin, be confident. Because in Jesus, you have an everyday, moment-by-moment intercessor who joyfully serves as your advocate before the Father on account of his perfect works. When you're anxious, worried about the future, dwell on the comfort of knowing that the Holy Spirit is right at this moment expressing your needs before God with groans that would cause all words to fail. Hold fast to the faith because you have a forever friend in heaven who is always praying for you, who ever lives to intercede for you. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for providing us with the best defense lawyer that has ever existed. Our merciful faithful, powerful high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he intends and will certainly succeed at saving us to the uttermost, fully applying every one of his merciful and gracious saving blessings to us until he is all in all in our lives, until we are conformed most perfectly to his glorious image. We thank you that that interceding work never ends, that he always lives to make intercession for us. So, Lord, as we think of your present work, may we not think of you as being inactive or passive as far as our salvation goes, but help us to rejoice, whether it is a moment of strength or a moment of doubt and weakness, that we have an advocate in heaven, an intercessor who is praying for us, assuring that our faith will not fail even if we should fall. We thank you for this comfort. We thank you for this assurance. May our lives be a reflection of this glorious knowledge that we have a perfect high priest, a friend, an advocate, a defender in heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be all the praise and glory. Amen.